1: You know, at this point in the cycle, the economic cycle, a lot of people are calling for the reflation of the U.S. economy. Uh, And and I want to get a sense of how much reflation we're actually seeing on the ground. I want to bring in Ward McCarthy, chief economist at Jeffries. We got some data this morning, more signs that retail sales are accelerating, that we are seeing uh, inflation uh, keeping keeping up in Europe. Ward, do you think that people are adequately pricing in just how much inflation is going to increase this year.
2: Well, I think that people are coming to the realization that the deflationary period is over. Um, I've been expecting inflation to accelerate, uh, really, for uh, the past year or so. And one of the key developments on that front was when the commodity markets bottomed in February of 2016. So as far as the CPI is concerned, I think we could see a 3% print um, by the third quarter of this year.
0: Ward, does that mean that precious metals such as gold might benefit?
2: Uh, well, that historically has been the case i 'm um, not a, a gold bug myself, so uh, I tend to f- uh, focus really more on the implications for um, you know the the bond market, especially you know and also the, the stock market um, but I well let 's see bad bugs, for the we'll
0: bond market, that. good for the stock market.
2: Well, I think it would be good for the stock market because it would be an indication that uh, businesses are finally getting some pricing flexibility that they have not had for quite some time. And, of course, the bond market's going to price that in, especially at the long end of the curve, because of rising inflation expectations.
1: Ward, there's a big debate that's raging among people who I talk to, which is at what point do benchmark bond yields rise to such a degree that it no longer – Works to go to stocks is sort of the there is no alternative wager. In other words, at what point do people say, Look, I'm going to go back to bonds, at least I'm going to get 3%, 3.5% yields, and I'm going to get my money back? And will the rise in yields start to actually hurt
3: stocks?
2: Well, I, I think we're a ways off from that actually happening. I think we're at the early stages of a rising rate environment. So even though rates right now might look attractive relative to what we've had um, over, a, you know, a recent past, um, the reality is that you'd probably lose um, in the longer run because bond prices are going to be falling and um, so it's, I think, a ways off before that's that's going to happen. What I think will uh, somewhat moderate, at least the pace at which um, interest rates rise, is the fact that we still live in a QE world um, with the BOJ and the ECB. So U.S. rates are still very attractive relative to overseas rates. So we'll continue to see institutional investors willing to buy the U.S. bond market, even though prices are falling, just because... Uh, the rates are attractive to them. Uh, And that's especially the case for life insurance companies that are really in kind of a box right now with the uh, liability streams going forward that um, really are not a good match for their asset streams.
1: So there sort of seems like there are competing factors here. You have people who are sort of looking ahead, seeing inflation, saying yields over the longer term are going up from here. And you have others like the life insurers that are saying, we need income. It looks more attractive in the U.S. than the rest of the world. going to come in. uh, Now, given these sort of competing factors, where do you see 10-year U.S. yields ending the year, and where do you see them in uh, 18 months from now?
2: Well, I think the direction is higher. So a year from now, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that there'll be a uh, 100 basis points higher. Um, but a lot of the, the magnitude of the increase is going to depend on uh, what the new administration actually gets done on its very ambitious fiscal plan. Uh, and I say that not only because uh, the fiscal plan has the potential to significantly add to growth, um, but it also has potential to significantly add to debt supply, uh, both on the Treasury side and potentially on the private sector's um, side as well. So, So uh, I think the direction is a lot clearer than the magnitude, but we'll get a better handle on that after the first 100 and 200 days of this new government.
1: 100 basis points, that would take us to 3.4 percent on the 10-year.
0: Well, Ward, you know, just before we get to these 100 days of the new administration, is it possible we're going to get a rate hike in early February? Oh, I don't think so.
2: Uh, I think that uh, the Fed has is sending us two messages, uh, both at the December FOMC meeting and, more importantly, in the minutes that we've seen since then. Uh, they made it clear that for the first time, they could see the potential for upside risk to both growth and inflation. And as a consequence, they may have to accelerate the normalization process, both of raising rates and of shrinking the balance sheet. Now we beginning Beginning to see a debate Uh, public debate yesterday, Presidents Kaplan and Harker, for example, talking about how the Fed should shrink the balance sheet. Next week, we'll hear from more dovish members like uh, Presidents Dudley and Governor Brainerd. Um, So there's going to be, I think, a lengthy debate both within the the walls of uh, the the FOMC and also for public consumption about how the Fed's going to go about this. And I don't think they'll be in a position to either raise raise or start shrinking the balance sheet by February.
1: You know, there's been some uh, talk about the potential Fed choices by President-elect Trump, who would come in in 2018, particularly for uh, Fed Chair Janet Yellen. Uh, what have you gleaned so far from some of the names that have been floated?
2: Well, they're relatively high-profile names. Uh, You know, uh, John Taylor was probably the first one to be circulated, but there uh, have been others since that time. I think the general um, gist of the type of person that they will be looking for is someone who's somewhat more rules-based than we have seen um, in in recent years. Uh, What I think that no matter who comes in, they're going to find out that um, you can be rules-based. But you're still going to want to have um, a lot of flexibility in how you conduct policy. So uh, I expect Janet Yellen is going to serve out this term. Um, She has, uh, you know, really done a great job of taking the baton from Ben Bernanke, and I think she'll want to see uh, her task through to fruition. Whether or not um, you know she is appointed next year or not, I think to a large degree will depend on uh, how the economy does this year. And frankly, what actually is done on the fiscal side.
0: Thank you very much for spending time with us. Ward McCarthy is the chief financial economist for Jeffries & Company, speaking about the U.S. economy and the potential for interest rate increases. Lisa Bromwitz, do you know what a medical village is? I do not. Well, we're going to find out from John Lauerman. He is our healthcare and hospitals reporter for Bloomberg News, and he joins us now from Boston, home to Bloomberg 1200. You know, John, thanks for being with us and a wonderful story. I wonder if you just maybe begin by telling the anecdote that leads the story, because I think that really kind of sets the scene for the details.
4: Well, I went to a hospital um, – good morning. I went to a hospital um, out in uh, Kingston, New York, that's uh, that has a, an operating room that um, was built, uh, I think, about five years ago for, I believe it was $5 million. Um, and uh, it's never been used. And th- they're actually not going to use it. Um, it's going to be renovated. And the space, the entire hospital space, which I believe is now a 150-bed hospital, it only has like about a 50 percent occupancy rate. And it's going to be renovated into what they call a medical village, and it was—I had never heard the term before either. So I was really interested in in going out there and, and finding out what it all means. And basically, this hospital, uh, it, the the uh, um, uh, parent that owns it, they've decided that they're going to make it into um, an outpatient center. And they're doing that for a variety of reasons, but it's mainly because they want to figure out uh, ways that they can continue to serve patients. A lot of patients, actually, who come through their emergency room where they're very they're very expensive to take care of, and they want to. Um, care for those patients in an outpatient setting as opposed to inpatient. So inpatient, that's somebody who spends a night in the hospital. Outpatient, that's somebody who walks into, like, say, an office something, gets care and goes home, usually the same day, not always, but almost always the same day. That's what outpatient uh, usually refers to. And um, so they're uh, they're converting this hospital. It's no longer going to be a hospital. Uh, They're moving its services into another facility that's uh, just a couple of blocks away. And it's really a part of a trend that's going on uh, all over the country where hospitals um, are are uh, uh, closing um, and uh, but even more than that, services in hospitals are moving out of hospitals um, into other settings.
1: well, okay, uh, John. This has been going on for uh, more than a decade, right, where you've had this consolidation of hospitals and this sort of move to, uh, as procedures are done in an outpatient way, people are taken care of for less time, people's hospital stays have been shortened by better technology. Um, Is this sort of closure of some of the hospitals problematic or is this just the natural evolution in medicine?
4: Well, it depends on, you know, uh, you talk about uh, evolution. Um, Sometimes uh, evolution has... uh, it can have a very tough impact on you know particular um, populations and um i 'm not saying that this is the case uh, in 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 a community that I visited, but in many communities where hospitals close uh, there aren 't um, hospitals nearby uh, to take care of people um, Rural hospitals are the most vulnerable to being closed they 're smaller they uh they they, they draw on smaller patient populations um they have uh, a, a less uh a diverse suite of services to offer so their they're patients more likely to be sent to big city hospitals um for uh uh more complicated procedures procedures that might that might provide more money to hospitals um might provide more revenue and uh, so these are the ones that are most um, vulnerable to you know to uh to to having tough financials uh and to closing and um but it but it's, it's it's not just these i mean there are hospitals as well in big cities that are consolidating getting smaller there's a hospital uh uh that we wrote about in the story um in new york actually that's uh, the mount sinai uh, health system the mount health sinai system, exactly right 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 um they've decided to uh, really scale down the size of one of their facilities and uh, really ramp up the procedures that they 're providing that doesn 't mean that people in new york city aren 't going to have enough hospital beds obviously there 's hospitals everywhere in new york but uh, but it, it but it does um, in in many communities it does remove. Uh, uh, the nexus of the local health care system. Right. Thank right.
1: you so much. Uh, it's really a fascinating story. John Lowerman, health reporter for Bloomberg, talking about the dwindling number of hospitals.
0: To learn more about today's earnings results from major banks, I want to bring in Allison Williams, senior financial research analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Allison, thanks for being with us. Uh, I'm looking thanks at J.P. Morgan stock. The shares are up about one and a half percent. Let's go over the details of J.P. Morgan. What stood out to you uh, in the uh, in the report?
3: So I think for J.P. Morgan, just in general, solid quarter. And, um, you know, costs basically right on target. That's a key thing that investors look for um, from a go-forward rate. Thick trading, which tends to be a little bit more fleeting, uh, coming in also better than expected. And so while that can be volatile, it, it, it can be important because it is, um, you know, a decent chunk of their revenue. And in looking for sort of optimism for earnings estimates to help sort of justify share, um, the share price moves, analysts are going to be looking for what is the run rate for revenue going into next year
1: so uh, j p morgan beat analyst expectations with debt trading bank of america did not while they had a pretty big increase uh they did not they did not beat
3: why so i think what's difficult a lot of times with the investment banks right is we saw bank of america miss um you know sort of a 12% gain um, I think it was, and then you know, J.P. Morgan having this huge number, you know, thirty-plus uh, percent gain, and so from just a simplistic perspective, someone might look at that and say, "Oh, they're you know, J.P. Morgan's gaining share." But I think a lot of times, what it has to do with is how are these banks' positions? What are the products that they're strong in, and then how did those products perform? So J.P. Morgan, you know, just the biggest in FIC, the biggest in rates, which was a, a, a good business, a rising volatility in that business. Bank of America, one of the areas that they're very Strong in is the municipal bond business, which, as we know, um, had a very tough quarter. If you look at the outflows in the in in the latter part of the quarter, uh, following the election presidential election, you saw those really driving overall. Bond mutual fund outflows, so um, and that really relates to some of the concerns around tax policy. So obviously, that's not good for trading, and that uh, may have been one of the areas uh, that was more negative for Bank of America,
0: Wells Fargo, uh, earnings of a dollar three versus estimates for a dollar. What about their mortgage lending business?
3: So, I think for uh, Wells Fargo, uh, you know they earn more from the mortgage banking business than peers, around eight um, percent. And I think one of the things that investors were sort of expecting this quarter is to see, um, you know, what happened with their accounting. We had this huge interest rate move, so we did get some of that. But what people are tend to more focus on is the origination side of the business, right? Because that's cash, whereas, um, you know, the other part of it is accounting. We did see, um, you know, volumes... Uh, coming in, the, the gain on sale sort of coming down. I think investors had expected that, again, what's going in the market. We've seen a cut in pipeline. Some of that, though, is seasonal. So some of it's the rate rise. Uh, some of it's seasonal in that business.
1: Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention BlackRock, the first big asset manager that also reported earnings. Um, they reported disappointing revenue gain, even as they reported record inflows. Uh, this just sort of highlights the difficulty with the ETF industry that is very
3: low cost. Um, do you think that BlackRock is going to have to cut more people at this point? So BlackRock, um, you know, they actually did uh, come into, the, their quarter actually came in a little bit better, helped by the expense side. And they actually did have some uh, cuts early in the year, which was which was sort of unique for them. That's just not something... Uh, In general, but you know, they basically they positioned that more as a sort of longer term positioning. As far as the uh, revenue trend that that you're speaking of, I think we did see BlackRock kind of come in. Uh, back in October, and uh, make some fee cuts to some of their ETFs, and that's really been successful in gar- garnering a lot of flows. And to the extent that you know that is a scale business, uh, BlackRock and Vanguard um, just taking in a, a ton of money in that business, uh, and that's not a people-intensive business. It is lower margin and it's a low lower fee revenue margin, but it has a huge benefit from scale.
1: Thank you so much. Alison Williams, always wonderful to hear from you, to make sense of all of the earnings that we're getting out. Alison Williams, she uh, knows everything there is to know about the finance industry. And She's... she'll be
0: busy next week as well because we have earnings from Citibank and a variety of other banks.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether they beat uh, as well at following in J.P. Morgan's footsteps. Allison Williams, Senior Banks Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. plunged more than 16% yesterday. Today, it's rebounding a little bit. Shares are up a little bit more than 4%. This is after emissions violations uh, accusations were lodged against Fiat Chrysler. And uh, traders are trying to figure out what this will mean and how much this will cost the company. I want to bring in Jamie Butters, uh, who covers autos for us at Bloomberg News. He is speaking to us from Detroit. Jamie, uh, can you make sense of this? Why are people kind of going back to Fiat Chrysler?
5: Well, they're really trying to sort out uh, what's going on because it is so unusual. Um, you know, the automakers can modify. You know, it requires a lot of programming for anything as complicated as, you know, a diesel engine and the uh, uh, filtering that has to go with it and how they operate and extreme heat and cold and various environments. So sometimes they, they put these software pieces on and sometimes the EPA... Uh, has questions about them and typically they argue them out and then uh, get it solved. And uh, according to the FCA's view is that we're still trying to sort out whether this is okay or not. And you're calling a press conference. (laughs) And and so when you you see the press conference as an investor, you're thinking, Oh my God, this is serious. This is like Volkswagen. But in the Volkswagen case in September of 2015, I mean the regulators had already extracted a confession, out of Volkswagen, uh, you know, it took 11 meetings between the California Air Resources Board and VW before they finally came back and said, "We don't have any more ex- explanations." you caught us with a defeat device. And, uh, you know, Fiat Chrysler is saying, this is in no way a defeat device. These are just regular things that we're trying to discuss and uh, make sure that we're all on the same page about. And so uh, the company is very frustrated. And the investors, of course, are kind of in the dark. They see this initial signal that makes them think, you know, this could be as terrible as Volkswagen. Uh, And then they hear the company saying, this is really nothing. Uh, You know, some skepticism about companies saying that, that, <laughs> that an issue involving maybe the Justice Department as well as the EPA is, is nothing, uh, but you know, certainly with the, being the final days of the Obama administration, there's some sense that, like with the EPA ruling on mileage today, some efforts to, to put the Trump administration into a difficult position or, to, or for the EPA to demonstrate their value and their necessity to the incoming administration.
0: Well, Jamie, and this is serious stuff because uh, not just uh, VW executives have been the target of the Justice Department, but we've learned today that three Takata executives have been charged in the United States as part of that criminal case to uh, mislead fe- federal regulators over the manufacture mm-hmm. of uh, those faulty airbags. So there are potentially uh, serious consequences.
5: Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing a, you know really aggressive enforcement out of washington and and some of it is a, a backlash to the financial crisis uh where you know the the overall health of the us economy and the world economy was put in danger and and you know and no one was really prosecuted no no nobody who uh Led to the financial meltdown was prosecuted for that and so there's been this greater effort to you know go after the bad guys and make sure you get that executives are held accountable the same as as other people might be uh but in uh but in some of these cases it's um, I mean it, it definitely raises the stakes for what maybe to Mr. Marchione's view would have been just an administrative, you know, set of meetings in a normal circumstance.
1: Jamie, um, you've looked at this, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, they announced that it's keeping vehicle efficiency standards intact through uh, the 2025 model year. How significant is this for automakers?
5: It's huge. You know, so if you, you know, the Obama administration set out these long-term goals, but they agreed to a midterm review, presumably would hit, you know, the middle of the term would be kind of twenty seventeen. And the the standards get much steeper, much quicker from twenty twenty one to twenty twenty five for vehicles that are categorized as light trucks, which is predominantly pickups, SUVs, and minivans, which happen to be where Fiat Chrysler makes all their money <laughs> and then some. So you know, they make Jeeps, they make Ram trucks, they make you know they used to make the town and country. Now they have a new minivan called the Pacifica you know, it's hugely important to Fiat Chrysler, but also to Ford, Chevy, uh, you know, GM uh, GM's brands and others. So uh, you know, they were looking forward to a midterm review where they could state their case and explain that while they've been able to produce efficient vehicles for the last four years, uh you know, getting that much more efficient would be very difficult and very costly. That's the industry's view. And the regulator the EPA and and others Say, oh, you've done just fine so far, and there's really nothing to worry about, and no reason not to lock in these rules. And so, you know, Mr. Markeyoni spoke at length about this on Sunday, saying, you know, this was supposed to be a regulatory review, and instead we got an adjudication. You know, they didn't feel like they got to make their case, and the EPA just uh, rammed it through and and tried to put this in place. And it'll uh, told it'll be much more difficult for the Trump administration to have a
0: review. And All right, well, to, to I know you're going to be following this for us. Jamie Butters is our U.S. Autos reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our bureau in Detroit.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz one before the podcast. You can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.